imagine for a moment a life that feels unhurried and unworried. A life of patience, peace, and freedom from the obsession over others' opinions of you. A life of genuine humility that serves without keeping score. A life free from secret sins and resentment. Do you believe a life like this is possible? You can become a different kind of person. Guided by a different set of values. Jesus is inviting you to follow him. Are you ready? Hey, good morning, Go Church family. It is a joy to see you here today. Looking across this uh, particular room here at our South Metro Atlanta campus, a lot of familiar faces, some new faces, but it is an honor to have you here on this Sunday. This location is our broadcast campus, and from here we have the privilege to live stream the message part of our gatherings. And so let me look in the cameras in the back of the room, say good morning to our West Side Atlanta campus, our Montgomery County, Maryland campus, our online campus, whatever campus you're a part of today, whoever you are, wherever you're watching from, we just want to say God bless you and welcome to Go Church. So can every person at every campus put your hands together, greet one another, come on, let's do that. One big happy family, come on. And then if you've, uh, if you've been a part of Go Church for any period of time, you know that we have a tradition here at Go Church before we jump into the Word where we pause to give honor to the brave men and women that serve in the military, that's a veteran of military or active duty, and all of our first responders as well. So we want to acknowledge you and honor you. So if that's you, veterans of the military, active duty, first responders, every campus, would you put your hand up for about 10, 15, 20 seconds, and I want every person to show some love. Come on, let's go, church. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You can clap a little better. Come on, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. Thank you so much. God bless all of you. Come on. And then most of you know this uh, because it is, it is a holiday here in our country and for good reason. But tomorrow we're going to pause to reflect and to recognize the great late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., all of his tremendous work of fighting through um, civil rights to allow us, irregardless of our background, socioeconomics, and regardless of race, to come together just as, as humanity and to love one another. And I can't thank God enough for individuals like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. because Go Church is a reflection of everything that he stood for, everything that he fought for. Whatever campus you walked in today, if you look around that auditorium, you're going to see what heaven looks like people from every part of life and people that don't look the same. That is a reflection of heaven. And God made man and he made man in his image. So don't ever take for granted the diversity of Go Church. This is a beautiful room. It's a beautiful family. And we are better because of the, the ethnicity and the culture and the history that we bring to this family. Can you say amen to that? Come on, can you say amen? Now, I've told you this story some years ago, but I don't, you got to hear the story, okay? Hear the story. Many years ago, there was a white guy that walked up to me after church as the church was growing, especially with diversity. And he said to me, this white guy, said, Pastor JC, I really hope that there are no black people in heaven. And it took me off guard. And I said, now say that again. He said, I hope that there are no black people in heaven. And I just paused and I said, man, you've got nothing to worry about. And he said, really? I said, yeah, because you ain't going. Come on, somebody. 
You ain't going to be there. You ain't got nothing to worry about. This is what heaven looks like. Red, yellow, black, white. That's a great place to say amen. And so we thank God for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We thank God for his life, for his legacy, and the responsibility that you and I must carry on. Racism, the walls of racism will not exist in the walls of Go Church. Can you say amen to that? So we say thanks be to God for his life. And then, of course, you know that we are now in the third and final week of our 21 days of prayer and fasting. It has been a tremendous journey so far. And I'm so proud to pastor a church that is hungry to go deeper in the things of God. Now, in this final week, we're going to come together at every campus Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. I know that particular time can be tricky for a lot of you for a variety of reasons. But I am going to ask, perhaps you could look at your calendar and join us on Saturday morning at 9. It's the final Saturday during the 21 days of prayer. Now, we, we come together on the first Saturday of every month for a time of prayer. But I'm going to invite you to come this Saturday at whatever campus you attend. 9 o'clock, we'll have worship. Uh, I'll be bringing a devotion that morning. And then your campus is going to have prayer stations that you can interact with. It's going to be a great morning as we close out the 21 days, okay? So join with us on this Saturday. And let's believe God for great things in 2023. We're believing this to be the year of God's miracles. Psalm 77, 14. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the people. So we're standing on that word, all right? Let me pray for you today. You pray for me. I'll pray for you. I covet your prayers. Uh, being a part of this fast, just like many of you are, I need strength from the Lord. I need clarity in my mind and clarity in my, in my speaking. I need the Lord to anoint me, but you need to be anointed as well. So Lord, as we bow our heads here, we're going to take just a few seconds and pause as kind of a moment of meditation and focus, realigning our thoughts, inviting you in. We know the enemy would love to distract these moments that we have together, but we're going to push through that. So take, take about 10 seconds, and then I'll, I'll pray for us, and we'll jump into the message together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, it is a tremendous weight of responsibility to stand on this platform and to preach your word. But I thank you that you've anointed me to preach good news. And Lord, that your hand is upon me for this moment. Lord, I just pray that you, you, you would truly use me, Lord. And uh, I know the enemy would love to distract us from hearing what you would say, but your word never returns void. It's a double-edged sword and it penetrates right to our heart. And I know that for a lot of people, myself included, this word they need to hear. So we commit the next 35 minutes to you. We ask that you would, uh, you would show up. It is not the desire of my heart to be a famous pastor or to get a lot of followers on Instagram or any of that. I want to make you famous. I echo what Paul told the church at Corinth. For I do not preach with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. So Holy Spirit, show up today. I'm giving you uh, my heart and my life, asking that you would use me. Speak to us and speak through me, and we'll give you all of the glory. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray, and everybody said amen. And if you could, can we take 10 seconds and just honor the king? Come on. Come on, just bless the Lord. Oh, come on, somebody clap like God's been good to you. Good. All right, so we're in week number three of a series that we're calling Deep Change. Uh, we're looking specifically on how to create spiritual depth in a shallow world, and, and we're using this book called Deep Change, written by a really good friend of mine, Pastor Jason Isaacs. Uh, a few hundred of you between all of our campuses have already picked up a copy of this book. 
If you've not yet purchased the book, let me encourage you to do that. Uh, the messages that we're preaching in the month of January are a supplement to the book, and so you can stop by Next Steps today. They'll tell you how to buy the book or where to buy the book, and if we're sold out of books at your campus, uh, you can go on Amazon and pick up a copy. But the book is incredibly powerful, and, and when you read this book and, and when you lean into the, the messages that we're preaching, really the whole thought or the theme is found in Matthew chapter 22, and I'm showing you this verse in, in every introduction of the messages within the series just to make sure we're all aligned with the point of the conversation. And that is, they asked Jesus, what's, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, all right, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And so every day that you and I wake up, every day that you and I live, we should ask the Lord to give us the Holy Spirit, to transform us in such a way that we can become more like Him and love Him more in our heart, in our soul, and in our mind. And then Jesus went on to say, it's, it's not on the TV here, but it is in, in the Bible, that the second greatest commandment is like this one. Not just to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, and mind, but to love your neighbor as yourself. So how do we do that? How do, how do we arrive at loving the Lord with everything we've got? And, and here's the big idea, but you've got to invite the Holy Spirit into the deepest part of your life, opening yourself up in that deepest part and say, okay, I, I want to be more like Jesus, so I need the transformational work of the Holy Spirit to do kind of that spiritual surgery within me. That, that word deeper could, could be, or deepest rather, could be a number of words, the, the darkest parts of your life, the most uncomfortable parts of your life, the areas of your life that you're most afraid, or those areas that, that you've kind of closed off to and you don't want anybody going there. It's, it's there in those places where deep change can really happen. Now, when I read this book, by the way, and, and as I've been preaching now in this series for uh, a, a couple of Sundays consecutively, I can't get away from this thought. And I actually called Jason, who wrote the book, and just said, hey, this is what I'm feeling, and I want to share it with, with, with the Go Church family, and I want to make sure that it aligns with the, the content of the, of the book. Obviously, it aligns with the content of the Word of God. But when I read this book, and when I think about this verse, loving the Lord with all of my heart, soul, and mind, and then I think about inviting the Holy Spirit into the deepest part of my life so that I can become more like Jesus. Listen to me. This isn't just about salvation. This is about something even more than salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. Write this down. Salvation is eternally important. So, so in order for you to spend eternity with God, you must have repented of your sin, invited Jesus to be the Lord of your life, to confess your sin, allow what he did on the cross at Calvary, the blood that was shed there, to cover your sin. The only way you get your name written in that book is confession and accepting of his grace and his mercy. Ephesians 2.8, right? It is by grace through faith that, that you're saved. It's not of yourselves. You can't earn your salvation. You can't work for your salvation. But when we want God to do a deep change, it's not salvation alone, which is eternally important, but you're actually inviting the Holy Spirit to take you on a journey of sanctification. Now, for some of you that you've been in church for a while or you've studied Scripture, this theological word is not unfamiliar to you. You're, you're aware of sanctification. For a good number of us, though, we, we may have never even heard of sanctification. What is sanctification? Now, salvation and sanctification, they work hand in hand. And, and they work in, in harmony with each other to get us to the, the goal of Matthew 22. Loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
But salvation, salvation is a one-time experience. But sanctification is a lifelong process. Let me say it to you like this. Salvation can happen in a moment where sanctification happens over a lot of moments. So in a moment, you can invite the Holy Spirit into your heart to forgive you of your sin. And in that moment, through your act of confession and repentance and receiving the grace of God, you can be saved. But in order to be sanctified, you can go on a journey. Can I get an amen from somebody? Let me give you an analogy, maybe a bad analogy, but this is how my brain works. Um, if you want to get in shape, right, you want to get swole, come on somebody. Um, you can't just walk in a gym and look at the weights. You're going to have to pick up some weights and do the hard work. Does that make sense? Anytime I go to work out, man, I'll go in the gym, I'll, I'll lift a few weights. You can tell by the way I did that. I don't do it often. Come on, somebody. But I get this other hand to help it up, you know. And, uh, and I'll go home, I'll take my shirt off. I'm like, Kimberly, what you think? She's like, well, it looked about the same as it did an hour ago. But they're going back down to the gym. And I think when it comes to us, uh, you know, being deeply changed by God, this is not just salvation, but this is like complete transformation. God, sanctify me. Sancti sanctification means to set someone apart to make them holy, to become more like Jesus. And that is allowing the Holy Spirit, listen to me, to kind of chisel away at some things, to kind of remove some things. And that, that's, a, that's a painful process. Does that make sense? So when I read this book, when I look at these four practices, feel your feelings, face your past, change your habits, embrace your limits, it's, just, it's, it's a part of the process of sanctification, it's not just one step and now I'm done. It's I'm going on this journey with the Lord and I'm going to practice these disciplines. I'm going to practice these assignments because I want to be sanctified. I want to be, be less like me and more like Christ. Is that anybody's prayer? I want to be less like the world and more like Jesus. My goal is to love him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And will you bat a thousand every day? No, because you are a human and there are days that your humanity is, is, going to, is going to be on display. Plus, you're surrounded with stupid people. Come on, somebody say amen to that. Like, and you go, wow. Somebody's like, yeah, and, and he's right here. <laughs> I brought him to hear this message. I get it, right? And so in those days that we fall short, the goal is then the next day to say, Lord, I want to be more like you today than I was yesterday. So sanctify me. So last Sunday, we talked about feel your feelings. Today, we're going to talk about Facing your past, facing your past. Now, some of you already, in your mind, you're thinking, is this even biblical that I have to face my past? Because my Bible says that when I am in Christ, I'm a new person. And all the old stuff is gone. You know what? You're right. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is, is that verse. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. Come on, anybody saved and you're thankful for that? Like you're a new person? I'm a new creation. That new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. Now, what does that verse mean? That verse means that, that when you get saved, the grace of God, the love of God, the, the blood that was shed on the cross covers a multitude of sin. And watch, and your sins are forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, the foolish decisions that you've made, what can separate you from the love of God? Romans 8, nothing can separate you the moment that you cry out to God and you confess you are a new person. But watch this, that does not mean that your old life hasn't impacted you. It doesn't mean that your old life hasn't shaped you. 
And it doesn't mean this, that because now you're saved, there are no consequences for your behaviors in your old life. Maybe this has happened to somebody you know. It didn't happen to me, and it hasn't happened to anybody at Go Church. At least they haven't told me this, but I've never met anybody that the day they got saved, God wiped their memory of their old life. Where, you know, I don't, I don't even remember that old life. As a matter of fact, the more I see that play out, the more I realize that, that when I give my heart to the Lord, the more the enemy wants to remind me of my yesterday. The enemy wants to remind me of my past and how I used to be. Does that make sense? And so every, every day, this is really important to our conversation in the whole series, but every day that you live, you are going to continue to have this internal fight. It's the flesh, those desires, those beliefs, those emotions, those thoughts, which all of those lead us to our decisions and our actions. It's this flesh that wants to draw us into that old life versus the spirit of God that's in us, that's drawing us through this process of sanctification. And every day you're going to be in this, you're going to be in this, constant, this constant tug of war. Does that make sense? So you would, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but you would be foolish to think, well, now that I'm a Christian, I don't ever have to face my past. You don't get a blank canvas of your past. Now, you, you, get, you get grace and you get mercy, but your past has shaped you. Your history has, in some way, tried to define you. And now God wants to make you more like him, a new creation. And so when we talk about facing your past, there's a lot of different ways that we could go. We could talk about uh, the mistakes that you and I have made in our life. By show of hands, anybody ever made a mistake? Yeah, some of you just made one. You lied. You didn't even raise your hand. Well, I ain't raised my hand. Well, you made a mistake. Liar. Uh, we could talk about our biggest regrets, our biggest failures. We could talk about how immature we were at 22, how unwise we were at 32, how foolish we can be at 52. Come on. Well, I'm not 52 yet. I got 10 more years before I get there. But I think all of those decisions, the, the past mistakes, the biggest regrets, the dumbest moments of our life, a lot of that is in some way, shape, or form connected to our family of origin. How you were brought up, how you were raised, the home that you grew up in. Now, let me say it to you like this. Um, family is not emotionally neutral. Words like mother, father, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, Papaw, Meemaw, Gigi, Granddaddy, whatever, those aren't emotionally neutral. Some of you, you grew up in, in such a healthy family dynamic that you hope that the family, you, your, your immediate family now, that they're exactly like the family you grew up in. And then others of you, man, when you hear those words, there's a tension that's there. And you hope that, man, I, I hope I'm the exact opposite of how they were. And it's funny, too, because the home that you're raised in, is this, it's a huge factor in what shapes you, whether that's positively or negatively. Listen to me, and everybody, everybody can agree with this. When it comes to family, they, they can be a blessing or there can be baggage. And how, how do you deal with that? And it's interesting because as a kid, and maybe even as, as an adolescent, and depending on your family dynamic, maybe even into like your adulthood, there's this thought that I'm never going to be like my parents. Like, I don't ever want to be like my parents. Now, I'm not an insurance salesman, but I have to admit, the best commercials that are on the TV right now are the progressive commercials 
where Dr. Rick talks about, you know, um, unbecome your parents. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Maybe this little visual here will help you. So it's, it's, these, it's these commercials. And they, man, the marketing of a progressive is just, it's, it's brilliant. And why, why are these so funny? Why is it so funny to watch these individuals behave the way that they're behaving? The one guy that Velcros his remote control to the, to the you know, the, 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 the table there, the little coffee table. Or the one commercial where they're, they're using this lady who leaves a voicemail. And on the voicemail, she states her name and then she gives her phone number repeatedly. I do that. Like I tell you my number two or three times because I'm just trying to give you time to write it all down. And Dr. Rick is like, now what's the problem with that? And they're trying to figure out. He's like, the problem is you left a voicemail. Like you could just send a text message. Like you don't, you don't have to. You, how many of you know the commercials? You know what I'm talking about. But why are they so funny? Because they're true. The harder you try to not become your parents, the more you actually realize I'm becoming just like my parents. Like I'm pi- I have picked up in, my, in, the, in the environment in which I was raised, I've picked up certain behaviors and characteristics and little nuances. That's why right now, listen to me, this, somebody needs to hear this. It, whoever in your family, you know, you have the greatest tension with, it's probably because you're just like them. And you don't even see it. So the, the father and the son, they don't get along because they have the same mannerism and temperament. The mother and daughter, they're like just at war with each other because they don't realize you're actually the same person. Does this make sense to anybody? Now, you're not a clone of them. You have your own gifts, and you've got your own talents and, 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 and all of that. But a lot of times the way that we act or react is defined by the home that we grew up in. Peter uh, Scazzaro says it like this. You're going to love this quote, by the way. He says, Jesus lives in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. Come on, somebody. Like, I've invited Jesus through salvation to live in my heart, but I'm actually learning that I am the way that I am because of my family of origin. This helps us to know that I'm a Christian, but here's why I still wrestle with anger management. Because grandpa did or my mom did. That, that doesn't justify it, by the way. God, God wants to give you freedom. Somebody say amen. But Jesus living in your heart and grandpa living in your bones helps you to realize, like, like I'm a Christian, but here's why I still can't manage money well. Because watch, there's generational bondage. There's stronghold here. Somebody listen to me. This, I, I, love, I love Jesus. I'm a Christian, but I still wrestle with certain temptations and addictions and, and vices. Why? Because you can go back to your family tree and see, and this is, a, this is a, a strong phrasing here, but I'm going to say what it is. Listen to me. It's a generational curse that the enemy has taken something and attached itself to the root of your family tree to try to get you out of the straight and narrow, to get you off of the track that keeps you just fervently pursuing God, loving Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and going back into the same addictive or whatever patterns and behaviors of mom, dad, brother, sister, grandmother, grandfather. But God says that you can have freedom. Whom the Son set free is free indeed. And listen, and the Bible is not exempt from families that we could talk about that really show us exactly this truth. That Jesus lives in your heart, but Grandpa 
lives in your bones. Now, watch this. We'll, we'll talk about family, biblical family for a moment. Whenever the Bible uses the phrase family, you have to know this, that it's specific to the Jewish heritage and culture. So whenever you see family, the Bible is talking about family over three to four generations. So you've got child, parent, grandparent, great-grandparent. Does that make sense? Now let that thought, look, look at this real quick. Let this thought sink in for a moment. Because that means that some decisions that your great-great-grandparents made a hundred years ago have still somehow worked their way into your decision-making now, into your desires, your beliefs, your emotions and thoughts. And for many of us, like myself, I, I never even met my great-grandparents. Three to four generations when the Bible talks about family. Let me give you a verse here to, to back up what I'm saying. God said this, Exodus 20, verse number 5, he's talking to Moses. Watch. God said, I'm going to punish the children for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. Now, I don't know how you receive this when you read it. I don't know how you perceive it when I read it to you. But initially, I think, man, this is really hard. That God is going to, to punish me because of something my family did a hundred years ago? Or here's one that, that provides a, a lot of, like, weight. You're, you're going to punish maybe my children or my great-grandchildren because of decisions that I make today? Now watch this. This word punish in the Hebrew, and this is really, really important to the context of this verse here. The word punish in the Hebrew is pakad, pakad. And it literally means this consequences that repeat. Do you see that? Picard means consequences becoming fully known. So what the enemy does in one generation may not become fully known until three or four generations down the way. And that's why today, not justifying any of your behaviors or mine, but that's why there are certain areas in your life that you struggle with is because Jesus, man, is in your heart but grandpa or great-grandpa or great-grandma or great-great-great-so-and-so is still in your bones. So now when we look at the definition of punishment through the Hebrew word pakad, we can clearly more understand what God was saying to Moses. Watch this. The sins of one generation tend to repeat themselves. Or the consequences become fully known over three to four generations. I'm just giving you examples. I'm not putting anybody down. This is why some of you still wrestle with alcoholism. It's why you still wrestle with addiction. It's why you go from relationship to relationship or you can't stay in a marriage. And God wants to do a deep change in you. It's why you can't get financially uh, sound or healthy. It's why you lose your temper and you get frustrated because somewhere along the way, the enemy has worked himself into the family tree and now you are seeing the consequences becoming fully known in your every single day. That, listen to me. This is why you need to be sanctified. This is why you need to invite the Holy Spirit in to say, I don't just want to be saved so I can live in heaven forever, but I want you to do a deep change in my heart. So, and I feel like preaching for about 15 seconds here so that some of the generational curses that have attacked our family, they stop. They stop in the mighty name of Jesus that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. It won't work. Can I get an amen from somebody? 
Now, let me give you one example. Watch. Again, the Bible talks a lot about, about family to the third and fourth generation. Watch this. Let me spend a few minutes here. You have Abraham. Abraham was a good man, a faithful man, a righteous man, who the Bible says that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But in a moment, when Abraham was questioned about who was the woman with him, he became afraid. And because he got scared, he lied about Sarah. And instead of saying, this is my wife, he said, this is my sister. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I didn't realize Abraham grew up in Alabama. I'm sorry. It just felt right. Somebody need to hear that, and you need to hear go dogs. Come on, somebody. Why did Abraham lie? Because he thought, if I, if I reveal her identity, and I reveal our relationship, and they see her beauty, they're going to kill us. They're going to hurt us. So he lied. And he said, this is actually my, my sister. He was dishonest about who his wife was. Well, well, they have a son. They have Isaac. Don't even get me, you have to read it. Don't even get me started on Ishmael. All right? But they have an, an, a son, Isaac. Isaac, well, let me go back here. This right here, the second bullet point where he got scared and he lied about Sarah, Genesis 20. Where Isaac lies about Rebekah, Genesis 26. So Abimelech asked Isaac, the son of Abraham, who is this woman? And what was his response? It's my sister. Where did he get that from? It's from his father. Well, Isaac has a son, Jacob, right? Jacob was named Deceiver. He was known as a con artist. He couldn't tell the truth. And, and Jacob and his mother, they conned their brother Esau while he and his mom lied to his dad and, and stole from his father, stole the, just, they did, they just, this is what they did. Where did that come from? One generation to the next. And then Jacob has sons, and these sons lie about their brother Joseph. Jacob asks where Joseph is, and they say, well, an animal has eaten him, but really, they, they buried him in a pit and then sold him as a slave. Where does this come from? One, two, three, the fourth generation of Joseph is reaping the consequences of an earlier generation's decision. That's good preaching right there. Okay, who you are? I went to college to teach you stuff like that. Get your education. Come on, somebody. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. And watch, lean in for a few minutes. In the Bible, the story of Joseph is an unbelievable story of how someone can go from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. Joseph's brothers, right? How is Joseph related to Abraham? Father, grandfather, great-grandfather. Joseph uh, reveals to his brothers that, you know, one day that they're going to bow down to him, a dream that he had. They didn't like that, so they, they buried him in a pit. They, one of the brothers felt guilty about putting him in a pit. And so in the Bible, uh, this is the first recorded uh, example of human trafficking where they trafficked Joseph. And God forbid, but some of you, you have a story like that as well. You know what that's like. They sell Joseph as a slave. And, and who buys Joseph? Potiphar. And he's put as a hired hand in, in a palace. And while he's serving as a hired hand, he is, and this is important, he's falsely accused 
of sexual assault towards Potiphar's wife. She came on to him. He refused. She got embarrassed and had him arrested. Then he's thrown into prison. And for two years, he's sitting in a prison cell. And ultimately, he's been forgotten about. But the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord gave Joseph a series of dreams, and ultimately the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, was trying to find someone to interpret the dreams. One of the prisoners that was an inmate with Joseph uh, had gotten out earlier and was reminded that there was a guy that could interpret dreams, and so they call for Joseph. Joseph is standing before Pharaoh, and uh, Pharaoh says, can you interpret the dream? And Joseph says, here's what the dream means. There's going to be seven years of abundance and seven years of famine, seven years of, of blessing and seven years of of lack. And watch this. And, and, and Pharaoh appoints Joseph to the second highest position, prime minister in the land of Egypt. And what was his number one job? What was his number one responsibility? To run the distribution of the food during the famine. To collect the food during the seven years of abundance and to distribute the food during the seven years of lack. And in this story, watch this, and I'll, I'll show it to you here in a minute, but watch this. 22 years later, two decades after his brothers sold him as a slave, now they're standing in front of him begging for food, and they don't even realize it's him. And Joseph, I feel the anointing of the Holy Spirit, Joseph has a decision to make. Well, I allowed the, the pattern of behavior and the picard, the repeated decisions and consequences to play out in real time in my life, or will I stand here today and declare, I'm changing my family tree. Oh, y'all not going to help me preach. That's all right. I'm going to change my family tree. Next Sunday, my son Lakeland will turn 13 years old. I love both of my children more than any human could love another human. Right before this gathering started, I picked up my little girl, London, and said, hey, I, uh, for two weeks I've been giving her clues about a big event that's coming up. And I said, Saturday night, I'm taking you to a, a, a daddy-daughter-princess dance. I said, so you... You got to get all dolled up. You got to get makeup, and I'm going to dress up, and I'm going to look fly. So you got to look fly too, baby. And, and I love London, but Lakeland, my firstborn son, my only begotten son, he got here at 645 this morning to serve on the production team. He's 12, almost 13. And I remember holding Lakeland in my arms for the very first time. Now, I'm a new dad 13 years ago, and I'm holding him in my arms. He couldn't think or really process or fully understand what I was saying to him. But I remember saying to him, Lakeland, all of the generational curses that have been against the Worley family, buddy, it stops with me and you. Hold on one second. The wor- and I don't, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to the Worley name. Although the Worleys have disrespected that name long enough, liars, cheats, con artists, alcoholics, addiction, you name it. And that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And in a moment, holding my son, I had a decision. 
Will we follow in the repeated pattern of all of the previous generations of worldlies? Or will we take our authority in Christ Jesus and say, you know what? All of that stops with us. It all stops with me. Today I'm changing my family tree. Come on. Devil, no longer will you hold on with grips of addiction and alcoholism. We are free. And whom the Son set free is free indeed. Does that mean that we're perfect? No. Does that mean that Lakeland won't have his own challenges? Of course not. He's a human being with a calling on his life. But as a father, and more than a father, as a son of God, I had a decision. Do I just follow in the pattern of worldly after worldly after worldly? Listen, people would come up to me years ago and say, Oh, oh you're a worldly? Do you know so-and-so worldly from North Carolina? And you know what my response would be? Did you meet them in jail? Did they rob a bank? Did they get a DUI? Because if you say yes, man, we're probably related. How embarrassing. How humiliating. Listen, thank God for a praying mama, by the way. Come on, somebody. But I want to be the patriarch in the worldly family tree. That generations after me, if the Lord tarries, they'll look back and identify a man that stood his ground. That said to the devil, enough is enough. My family tree changes with me. And I am no longer bound by the addiction of the past. But I am free in Jesus' name. Let me get a hundred people to help me preach. I want you to clap like God is breaking some things off your family. That God is anointing you right here, right now. Come on, every woman on the west side, you hear the words coming out of the heart of your pastor. You can change the dynamic of your family. You can do it. But not on your own strength. Not on your own power. Only by inviting the Holy Spirit to create in you deep, deep change. And you know what? Man, I got a lot of learning to do as a pastor and as a husband and as a dad. There's not other than the Bible, which is enough, by the way, but there's not enough material on how to, how to parent children. And now he's going to be a teenager. And I told him the other day, he's getting so tall. I was like, man, you're getting so tall, but don't ever think I can't whoop you. Every parent said amen. And I just put him on the ground just to prove to him. Sweep that. Who's your daddy? I'm your daddy. A little London came in. I was like, who's you? Who's your daddy? And then Kimberly showed up. She's like, who's mama? Come on, somebody. Mama. Watch this. Joseph says, I'm changing my family tree. 22 years later. And now the guys that did the worst, most unimaginable crime to him, selling him, are standing in front of him. And he invites them to dinner. They don't even know who he is. He invites them to dinner. They go into a back room, look in Genesis 45. And during that dinner, Joseph can't stand it any longer. And he kicks every person out of the room except his brothers. All of you get out. And now he's alone with them. And you know what he could have done? He could have cussed at them. He could have flipped them off. He could have said, I'm going to leave you in this room and watch you starve to death. Because that's our emotion, right? When people do us wrong, I'm going to get even. Can I tell you, listen to me. 
Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And Joseph doesn't do any of that. Watch. Everybody leaves. And watch verse, four, uh, verse number 2 of chapter 45. And then he broke down. And he wept uncontrollably. I'm not trying to build up my story or my resume, but you don't know the tears that I've cried because of the pain of previous generations in my family, the hell that I've had to walk through because of the decisions that they've made. But you know what? You know why I can live my life in forgiveness now? Because just like Joseph, I didn't stifle down the grief. No, I grieved. And watch this. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, grieving is the groundwork that leads to forgiveness. Some, some of you, you've not grieved over what he did to you or she did to you or they did to you. And again, this isn't everybody's dynamic. Some of you had a great family structure. But a lot of us, man, there's stuff. There's stuff there. And that stuff is what shapes us. And I got Jesus in my heart, but I got grandpa in my bones. But today, through the authority of Jesus and what he's offering me, I, I, can, I, can, I can have freedom in this, and I can grieve, and I could admit. And he, here's what he said. Skip to verse uh, 20 and 21 of chapter 50. Watch this. He said, you intended to harm me? Ooh. You meant to hurt me? He didn't try to deny it. He told the truth. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. I don't know who needs to hear this, but watch. What the devil meant for evil, God can make good. Come on, if you believe that. There is a purpose inside of every pain. And only God can get triumph out of tragedy. He said, you meant to hurt me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And watch what he does. Right here he says, hey, so don't be afraid. You don't have anything to worry about. I'm going to provide for you. Holy Spirit, teach us something here through the life of Joseph. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. You got three more minutes? Have you ever heard someone say, forgive and forget? Who's heard that before? That's a lie. That's a lie. And if anybody's telling you that, they're misleading you. And, and they're trying to, to, to hide something that they're not wanting to grieve themselves. Listen, you can't forget. You'll never forget. Forgiveness is the opposite of forgetting. Forgiveness is remembering every single thing that person did to you. Every detail. How can you erase that from your mind? Even if you are a new creation, that pain has still hit you in a way that has impacted you. Forgiveness is remembering everything they did and then choosing, choosing, you know what, in spite of you intended to harm me, but God, God can take it and get good, I'm going to forgive you anyway. Who teaches this? Jesus on the cross at Calvary. And one of the final prayers that he prays, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you do that today? Can you say, God, I forgive this person 
for this action. I don't believe they know what they were doing. And even if they did, they had no idea how much it has hurt me. Listen, the longer you hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment, the longer that bondage will have control over your life. The more you refuse to face your past, and a lot of it, again, connected to our family of origin, the longer you'll find yourself in a habitual pattern of the same dysfunction and the same addiction and the same cycle of behavior as generations before you. Or can you say today, God, I just, I'm going to choose to forgive them anyway. And I'm asking that all of those things that have been attached to me, those chains just start to fall off. Because today, I want to change my family tree. Every head bowed, every eye closed. because of my emotion. (laughs) Thank you for your saving grace all my life. And thank you for changing me, Lord. May it be said in generations to come that there was a man that said, enough is enough devil you can't have our marriages any longer you can't have our children any longer you can't have your way any longer but I'm choosing the route of forgiveness even in my grieving Lord because you've chosen to forgive me so God I know who I need to forgive in my life And I know what they've done. And I don't know if they knew exactly what they were doing, Lord. And even if they did, they have no idea how bad it's hurt. And I know that this may be a process for me. And I'll I'll go to counseling. I'll talk to a pastor. I'll get in a group. Whatever I need to. But no longer, no longer will it hold me captive. No longer will it have me bound. I'm changing my family tree today. In the name of the Father who loves me, you love me, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And I give you all the glory and your perfect, mighty, powerful, wonderful, glorious name. And the whole church said amen and amen. I want you to take 10 seconds. Come on. To God be all the glory.